Welcome to the Design Systems Podcast. We're all about the places where design and development overlap. We talk with the industry experts about trends in design, development, and take a look at new ways to build digital experiences, typically over a beer or two. We're with Dan Mall, the CEO of Superfriendly. It's a design collaborative that helps in-house teams with design systems. Welcome, Dan. Thanks, Chris. Thanks for having me. Yeah, glad to have you here. So we've had a, a several conversations now over the past couple of months. And they've always been these really insightful kind of, of jam sessions about design systems, their role in big companies. You know, you guys do a lot of these big enterprise design systems. And a lot of that is is building up both an understanding on the development side and on the design side about how these impact companies. And I just wanted to, to chat with you for a minute about how you view design systems and their role in kind of a larger organization and how that affects the teams that, that are, are working with them. Yeah, sure. I have a lot to say, so fire away. Yeah, so so when you're actually looking at a design system for a large enterprise, like what is it that you you look at first when you think about like, all right, hey, you know, this giant company with dozens of designers and developers wants to get started with a design system. What's your starting place? Design systems are are wide organizational wide tools, right? So a lot of times what we try to do is get a it they involve both the forest and the trees. And we try to get a sense of like what's the forest at least. So, you know, what's the company and what do they do? I think a design system is a good tool to help teams build better products. So the first thing we do is like, well, what kind of products do they want to build? And then that gives us a lens or like a perspective into what kind of design system should they have to be able to build a certain kind of product. So when you're talking about products, what do you mean by that? Uh, so it could be um, any type of digital product. If you're an airline, right, some of your products might be apps or websites to help people check in or find their flight or things like that. If it's a, a hospitality company, it might be making reservations. If it's a restaurant, it might be about, you know, finding out hours. And so really, what is the core competency of the company? The design tool should help support that core competency. So like identifying that helps us to kind of figure out that perspective. Are these always digital or are there sometimes things that aren't in a digital space? There, there are likely things that aren't in the digital space. But in terms of the design systems that we help companies with, we primarily focus on digital apps, like mo- native mobile apps like iOS and Android or, or web things or kiosks, things like that. Anything really on a screen. So when you have all of these different screens and these different devices and these different products, how do you create one system that sort of manages them all? Like, what is that one ring that you forge that uh, allows you to kind of, of take control over over this brand and this experience across all these products? Yeah, I mean, that's a tough one because there is no one ring. You know, I think that everyone who, who does this work even even a little bit realizes like, oh, there's, there's a lot of things that have to come together to be able to make this a, a success. If there was one ring to rule them all, I think it would just be communication, right? I think if, if everyone is working together, that's a good sign. That is a Herculean effort right, to get everybody to work together. So that's, that's the tough part. But if you could do it, if you can collect everyone, that would be the way to do it. So when you think about how you unify all these different applications together with these big, diverse set of needs, you know, mobile apps, uh, you know, websites, all this other stuff like that, you know, you talked about communication being kind of the, the key to this. What else in terms of either the tech or the design or the tooling, like how do you see those, those processes change in these big organizations? So I think that they have to change because, uh, and I know this is a thing that you know we've talked about a bit, Chris, and in a lot of organizations, a bunch of team members work very differently and they work in a very siloed way, right? Designers do their design things, developers do their developer things, product manager do their product manager things, and they only like lightly graze each other, 
Right? A lot of teams that we work with, they go, oh, yeah, we collaborate. But collaboration really just means the thing that I make, I hand off to them, and then they use that, and then they hand that to somebody else, and they use that. Part of what has to change is that people have to move closer together in order to use a tool that all of them contribute to and all of them get benefit out of. People have to move their work closer together, and that's often really hard for teams to do. When you talk about moving your your teams closer together, you're not necessarily meaning physical space. You're meaning just actually making the workflow a little bit tighter, like making that iteration loop and that cycle closer together. Because when I think about moving teams closer together, lots of organizations that we work with have teams in you know China or India or, or very far away from wherever their corporate headquarters are. And so that collaboration gap really resonates with me. So when you talk about getting closer together, what, what do you mean by that? Yeah, so it is, it is, you know, moving the processes closer, moving the tooling closer. But sometimes it is like, hey, can you just sit next to that person, right? When that, whenever that's possible, that actually is a really good tip. And, you know, sometimes we'll work with organizations where designers are on one floor and developers are on another floor, right? Same building, just different floors. And so one of the things that we'll suggest is like, even for the day, can we just try for you two to sit next to each other? And let's see what, let's see what that creates. So sometimes it's like physical proximity. Sometimes it's simulating that physical proximity. So if you have one team in one city and another team in another city, which oftentimes is complicated by time zones too. What we try to suggest, you know, one thing that's, that's worked really well is how about you make a video and then you send it to that other person and then that other person can make a video to respond to your video. So it's almost like simulating real-time collaboration. So how can you simulate sitting together? If you can't actually sit together in the same physical location, how can you simulate it? How can tools help support that? A design system is a tool to do that. You know, good video chat's a good tool for that. You know, sometimes Slack is a good tool for that. So however you can get closer together in that way, increase the frequency of communication, the better we see teams do. I love the idea of the reaction video model of collaboration. Yeah. I think that that's uh that's great like there might be a youtube sensation there somewhere yeah exactly (laughs) (laughs) so so when you think about getting people close together getting people's workflows more in sync physical proximity that sort of thing what changes about the work product that these teams then create so traditionally like you were saying there's design on one floor they turn out a bunch of deliverables those are basically pictures of digital experiences and then there's developers on another floor that take those pictures of those digital experiences or those prototypes and they make them into the thing that users actually then go and like click on or, or have eyeballs attached to or whatever. What in that work product is different when you have a design system in place? So it's, it's hard not to talk about this without talking about agile, right? So every, every company out there says that they're agile. And I'm a big believer in agile, the agile methodology. Um, I think that it works wonders in how teams can, can work together. Most teams are not actually agile, right? What agile sen- tends to mean for some teams is either it means designers work really waterfall at first and then the development process is agile. Or it just means we don't really care about design at all. We just like ship software and ship software and ship software. And design is we'll figure out what to do with that. You know, and it's like a second class citizen. So to me, to really work agile means to follow the steps of the agile manifesto. And a lot of that means um, working software. You know, my favorite one and my favorite tenant, my favorite principle of the agile manifesto is working software over comprehensive documentation. And if you think about what designers do, designers really make documentation, right? By, by way of images, so this is, I'm documenting what the interface should look like, but they're not actually making software, 
right? They're make they're just documenting what the look of the software should be. What we try what we find is the closer we could move designers to software, actually making software, working with the software, or like working on the software, the closer they get to actually working with developers, right? Because that's where developers are. Developers are manipulating the software, creating the software, modifying the software. How do you bring designers closer into that? How do you bring product managers closer into that? Researchers closer into that? Because really, if you want to be agile, it's about everyone contributing to the making of software. Right. And I think it is controversial, um, to say the least, to talk about the idea that designers are creating specs for development. But, you know, that's an interesting idea of a shift in the role of design, especially as it relates to digital products. What would you say to to a designer that that is really looking to build that perfect comp or that perfect experience? Like, is that still something that you view as their role or do you feel that view that role is very much changing to be more of a software driven one? So I'll be controversial too. I'll continue the, the trend here, which is that designers who are interested, and I speak as a designer of, of many years, I, I'm, I'm a designer, I'm still a designer. I went to design school, right? So like it is, it is in my blood. Designers who just want to make perfect comps are selfish, right? It's a really selfish thing to do. It's it, because that's about you showing how good you are. It has nothing to do with users. It has nothing to do with your peers or your colleagues or your collaborators. It has nothing to do with helping your business, helping that like if really it's about the if it's about the perfect comp, right? If that's the goal, then I think the priorities are misaligned. Now you could be pursuing a perfect comp in order to make a better product. And I think that is like, that's admirable. You, you could be trying to make a perfect comp so that you make work easier for your developer counterpart. That's admirable. So, but if the goal is a perfect comp, I feel like it's, it's a bit selfish. And so what I tend to, to say to designers there is like, are you, are you working on product or are you working on drawing comps? And I'm going to steal a line from my, my friend Brad Frost. Um, he always says like, you know, whenever we go in, in and talk to teams or he says this in conference talks a lot where he goes, designers, raise your hand if you've been afraid to link to the actual build um, in your portfolios. Right. Like you put up the comps, oh. right? but you don't link to the actual build. And I think that's a good it's a good tell for like if some designers are just interested in like, how pretty could I make this? And that's not in service of making software. It, it's OK if you want to do that. But but let's not kid ourselves and say you're making software. When you think about that, there are, are lots of, of people that just essentially work in production inside of these organizations where their job is churning these things out. Right. Go make 50 comps of a button. Go make 50 comps of a page. Go make all of these different experiences at four different breakpoints and make them all pixel perfect. You know, it sounds like you're saying that, that a lot of that effort is is something that is is broadly unnecessary. Absolutely. I think I think designers waste a ton of time doing things that are unnecessary. And and it's not because they're being malicious or they're or they're being like, you know, they're wasting time on purpose. It's because they don't know what else to do, right? That's how they've been trained. That's how they've been brought up. Like when we when you think about how we used to make websites, uh, 10 years ago, let's say, it, it was that way. And so it's hard to shake that training. It's hard to shake that, like, that precedent of how we did it. And so when you say to a designer, don't do it that way, they're like, cool, but like, what else should I do then? And no one else has a good answer for that, right? So you can't take that away from someone without replacing it with something new or something, something new to try. And yet that's what we ask of designers as an industry. We go, you know, don't, don't do 50 comps. Okay, so, so then what else should I do? <laughs> like, what, how many comps should I do? Oh, we'll figure it out. Like, well, that's not helpful. So I think that there are ways, and that's, that's part of what we try to do when we work with clients is help them figure out those ways. Okay, designers, if we're asking you not to do 50 comps, what should you be doing instead? Where, what's a better use of your time and your skills? And it's interesting because when we have that similar conversation, because we have it a fair amount too, you know, a lot of the times that we talk about the idea that this having a system that manages all these experiences frees a design team up to do the more interesting work. 
And I think that one of the really hard things that we run into is very often the teams don't know how to actually convert into doing that interesting work. They maybe even don't know what it is. Oftentimes they have some sort of idea of what they want to do with that extra time. They say, you know, hey, I've always wanted to build this really cool micro interaction with this awesome animation or something like that. But it's very difficult for them to make the jump between I need, you know, 80 versions of this particular page or button or whatever to actually doing that deeper work. Do you have any strategies that you use to try to get people practically into that different mindset? Yeah, I mean, the first one is if you're in a position where you're telling your designers to change or you're as maybe a consultant that's like asking your clients to change, one thing that is on you is to kind of accept the fact that there's a lot of risk that you're asking someone to take on. You you know, I met this designer a couple of years ago with a client that we were working at. He was like, man, the the last seven years of my career have been like designing forms and tables. You know, it's like, so you're (laughs) asking me to like, all right, cool. We'll make one table, one form. It goes in the design system. We'll use that one. That makes sense. But like, now what do I do? Did you just, did you just make my job redundant? You know, like, am I out of a job now? Because that's how I proved my value before, or at least that's how I thought I did. And that's what everybody else thinks my value is. So if you take that away, am I no longer valuable here? And that's, that's a lot of what's wrapped up in that question is that like, if you take that job away from designers, are you basically saying, we don't need you here anymore? And, you know, I meet a lot of executives that have that perspective on a design system where they say, well, if we have a design system and we have all these like great solutions, that means we could fire half of our designers, right? I mean, sure you could, but that seems like the wrong thing to do. It's now your designers are freed up to solve higher order problems. Right. And so the first thing that I do with designers when I, I go, when we have a new client is I take the designers aside, we all get in a room. And I go, cool, just between us designers, let's make a list of all of the things that you tried to do on your last project that you never got around to. Animations, better documentation for this, uh, more testing for accessibility, um, checking mm-hmm. color contrast ratios better, custom illustration, custom icon sets. You know, I, w- I would mm-hmm. love to have art directed a photo shoot for this thing. But all of those things that have the same blocker, which is uh, we just don't have time to do that. What is all the stuff you didn't get to with the idea of like now you can figure out a way to put that into the priorities for your your digital product. Exactly. Let's make that list and hang it on the wall somewhere so that anytime you're like, now what do I do? You look at that list and you go, oh, I could make some custom icons. All right, cool. Like, Or even better, like I think once designers get the hang of that, then what we start to see is they start to go, well, you know what? We've been having the problem with conversion on this one thing. I want to do a couple of experiments there. Now mm-hmm. designers are actually thinking like designers and not like painters, you know, not like decorators, and like because that's what they were used to their jobs being before. You change this mindset and mentality from one of production to one of creativity. And also seeking out problems, right? Like now they're in search of things to do as opposed to, well, this is just what I do. That's great. I, that's really insightful to think about like how you you make this jump. I, I imagine that's often difficult for people as they see these systems being adopted, as they have these systems adopted in their workplace, their jobs change. And anytime you you have that change in front of you, that, that can be really hard. The pushback that we get all the time on this is that design systems are limiting my creativity. The tool itself, putting too many constraints in front of me. I want to, you know, paint outside the lines and I don't like the idea of, of putting design on rails. And you know, our pushback tends to be along the line of, of like, you know, you need to, to think about this from a point of view of it being freeing. And that sort of practical sense of like, let's go write down all the stuff you didn't do last time is a good way of showing how that that is freeing. Are, are there other things that you look at when a designer comes to you and says, hey, I'm worried about a design system because I feel like this might be too rigid for me or my, or my process? What do you say to them? I think the conversation that we tend to have there is, well, where does creativity belong in the first place? And the answer is not 
in every single thing. I, I tell this story a lot, probably because um, I have the conversation a lot, but also because I'm a sneakerhead. In the in the 70s, Nike debuted this new sneaker called the Tailwind. It, it was going to be the big announcement. Like they put a ton of marketing dollars into it, and they had like 30, uh, 38 or 28 new innovations in this shoe. Right, we have Airflow that does this and cushioning that does this, and, right? And it was like their big thing, and. People, like they sold out of this. Everyone was buying it. And as quickly as it sold out, it was being returned to stores. And the reason it was being returned was because all the innovations in it, one of the things that they didn't realize was like, so one of the innovations was they had uh, microfibers of aluminum in the shoe to strengthen the shoe. What they found was when people were running, the aluminum was actually slicing their feet like the top of their feet as they were running, like cutting people as they're running because of that innovation. And so the, the CEO of, of Nike, Phil Knight, he said like, we just tried to pack too many innovations into the shoe. Like that, that was our fault. Like we, we didn't realize that like, it doesn't have to, we don't have to pack all the creativity into that one shoe. There's lots of shoes to go around, lots of creativity to go around. Um, and designers do that all the time. They're so guilty of doing that where it's like, I'm going to design a form but it's going to be the most original form you've ever seen. It's like, well, that's the wrong place to put it. You know, that, that form doesn't need to be the most creative form ever seen. It just needs to help people like pay their bill. Yeah. Evan, Evan's favorite example is we were doing this work for Estee Lauder a long time ago, and it was trying to simulate the aroma of a type of perfume in a digital experience, which is in and of itself, like on, on its surface, a little ridiculous. It's kind of like, you know, a, a downloadable beer sample, right? right? And so it's great to have these these ideas of these creativity and these really creative pursuits online where you're trying to like push the boundaries of, of what digital experiences are. But I, I agree with you. I think there is a limit there. But I mean, do you feel like there are also some legitimate concerns here, you know, with site builders, with with all these no-code design tools, with all this stuff kind of proliferating around right now? You know, is, is there a loss of that idea of, of I just want my tools and I just want to be able to design? Like, are there legitimate criticisms associated with that? I think so. But I think like part of that conversation is where should the creativity go, right? So it's not like, it's not, let's eliminate it completely. It's let's pick, let's be intentional about the places that it goes. So when, you know, when I'm working with my teams and working with clients, a lot of what we do is we go, okay, we have these 10 products that we have to design, or even within one product, we have these 10 screens that we, we have to design. Which of those screens should be innovative? Like where's the, where should the special sauce go? And we get to pick it. It's not that there's a requirement for designers, and I think a lot of designers feel this, that there's, a, there's this unspoken requirement that everything has to be very creative, otherwise you're not doing your job. I think if we can make it explicit and, and make that part of the conversation to go, okay, we have 10 ounces of creativity that we could pour on one of these, but there is, there's more than 10 ounces of work here. Where mm -hmm. should that 10 ounces go? And like a lot of the way that we talk about it is, is we call it sauce, right? If you have too much sauce on a meal, it tastes gross. You know, like sauce should be, it should add to the flavor. It should enhance the flavor, but it's not, it shouldn't be a meal of sauce. That's disgusting. Like, you know, so, so you never see me eat a burrito from? then clearly. Wow. All right. Fair enough. <laughs> fair enough. <laughs> but like, so, so where, where are we going to spend that? Where are we going to put that? And I think it helps designers to focus, to go, oh, you know what? That element on the homepage could really use a little extra, you know, a little extra sauce or that, that one interaction, that mortgage calculator, what, you know, whatever it is. Like that's where we're going to put that. And then that like and then what I, what I found is that when you focus a designer in that place and the, the creativity is not spread around anymore, it's like it's right in there. And then everything else can be utilitarian, you know, no, like then we can use conventions. And that's where the design system comes in. It's like the design system should do all the stuff that's old and then the right. designer should do all the stuff that's new. It's a bit of an oversimplification, but that's that's kind of the way we think about it. No, totally. And, and like those those creative moments that you get or those those particular interactions, they're these really um, sort of special things. That's kind of what what makes an organization lead with design. You know, you think about all of the, the big brands that lead with design these days, like 
lots of them have these kind of special moments that exist inside of their their applications and their digital experiences that make people go, aha, that's cool. Yep, totally. Yeah, that, that's a really great take to kind of like to make this transition from from organizations that are just trying to keep up to organizations that are actually doing something innovative and creative in the right way. And I think that does get back to Agile a little bit. You know, when we talk about a lot of this synchronization of design and development work and trying to bring the work closer, our version of that oftentimes gets gets kind of process driven around the idea of like, okay, so, you know, if you guys are using Agile development cycles and say you're using Scrum or whatever, and you're, you're doing two-week iterations, at what point in those two-week iterations is an injection of, of creative mojo important to be able to, to keep the process rolling, right? Like at some point as a developer, you're just building features. And, and I'm going to go, you know, shift this conversation, go pick on developers for a little bit because we've kind of been picking on designers for a few <laughs> minutes now. As always, this podcast is brought to you by Basalt, a full-service digital agency. Basalt is committed to building a better web and specializes in creating design systems. Learn more at basalt.io. One of the things with with development that's challenging is that like developers will build features forever. You know, there's always another ticket, always another sprint, always another requirement that is in front of them. And a lot of that needs to be tempered or balanced with these injections of creativity. And we try to think about it as like, you know, for every two or three cycles of development, you want like one big cycle that injects a bunch of creativity back into that process. I'd be curious to know how how you guys take on that and how you guys think about that. So when you are working with the, the development side now, how do you make sure that that it doesn't just become this samey experience that is this rote thing that is pounded out in code? Like, When do those creative moments really get to the developers? Yeah. So I think we think about it the same way, except we probably slice it a little bit differently. So rather than like of three cycles, one cycle should be a creative cycle. And then, you know, by default, I guess that leaves the other two cycles to be non-creative cycles, right? Rather right. than doing that, it's let's take that that one cycle of creativity, but let's slice it up and distribute it across all cycles. So it'll be a little bit smaller in each cycle, but it exists in all cycles. And part of creating that, I think, is the designer and developer and the product manager or whatever the multidisciplinary team is up front at the beginning of the cycle, they have the conversation, the collaborative, real-time as possible conversation of what are we going to try and build and what are our priorities? To build it really quickly, to build it at high quality, to build something innovative, to use the design system well, like what is our priority here? And then have everybody shared on that goal, right? And what we find is if if you can do even just having that conversation, a lot of times the developer will go, you know, it'd be really cool. It'd be really cool if we did this. Mm-hmm. And and when it comes from them, it already comes from a place that's tempered because they're not going to suggest something that's going to make them blow their deadline, right? Because that's really important. Right. They're going to suggest something that actually works within the process already. And so like, and that often doesn't happen because a lot of times the designer is the one, quote unquote, charged with creativity and the developer is just like, I don't know if it's in the comp, I'm going to build it, right? And if it's not, I'm not going to. And so that whole cycle has to change. If you can get everybody talking about it in the, in the I mean, technically the creative process is talking about what you're going to make like that's the creative process it's not it's not sitting in front of photoshop or sketch it the creative process is the multidisciplinary team saying what are we going to do and what's important in what we do yeah and that that collaboration is so key and there's oftentimes in kind of inordinate amount of pressure put on designers to get closer to the code yeah i think that there is also a similar pressure that is emerging that is kind of nascent right now that, that we're finally recognizing the number of design decisions that developers are making when they take a comp and they actually translate that into to code that then gets 
consumed by a user is, you know, every missing breakpoint, every thing that has a rounded corner missing, every, you know, small detail or small interaction model. Because, you know, as as we're both fans of saying, design isn't just how it looks, it's how it works. A developer has a lot of leeway for interpretation in the the how it works side of things. And so when we talk about comps, we're starting to really push this idea of of like you know, keep things fairly low-fi because you want to have in that creative process that developer making a lot of decisions about the actual implementation of that thing because pixel perfection comes at a cost. And it's a really interesting cost inside of these multidisciplinary teams because maybe it's a performance cost, maybe it's a accessibility cost, maybe it's a, a code cost because that feature is just really hard to make look that particular way or work that particular way. And maybe there's something that's almost as good that is easier or better or more accessible um, or more able to, to test. And those types of design decisions, it really takes that collaboration to, to get there. And I think the developers haven't really felt empowered by that process yet. And I'd be curious to know, like, what's your take on that? What do you think about the role of, of developers moving closer to designers? Because we're, we're talking about this convergence, right, where, where these things are, are becoming more alike than they are different. How do you see developers meeting that convergence? I think it's important. I think it's it's less about developers moving toward design or de- or designers moving toward code, right? Like the like whole should designers code or should developers design implies that one can be stationary and the other one has to move all the way, or the other one is stationary and the other one has to move. It's not that. It's everyone move closer to the center, like whatever the center is. You know, we we envision process as linear, and so it means that one is the anchor and the other one has to move. But it's not. It's circular, right? It's like all the people are on the outside, and the core is the objective of the project. So everyone has to move closer to the core. And in that way, everyone is doing a little bit more and can cover for someone else more too. Like there's this great study from Google about, you know, what makes for the best teams. It's called the um, the Aristotle Project, I think. I don't know if I got that name right, but, you know, 2014, they studied like what makes for the best teams. And what they found was psychological safety makes for the best teams. It's not seniority. It's not quality. It's not, mm-hmm. it's not any of those. It's like when people feel like they can make a mistake and it'll be okay. And that's the thing is if we tell developers like get closer to design and if you do the design wrong, you're going to get fired. Well, there's no safety in that. <laughs> like same right, thing with totally. designers, like you have to code, but if you don't code the right thing, you're going to get fired or you're, or we're not going to let you touch that. Like, well, why would I do that? I'm not good at code. <laughs> I'm a designer, you know, like why would I design? I don't, I'm not good at that. I'm a developer. And so if it's about, you know, designers saying like, why don't you give this design a shot? And it's cool. If you don't get it right the first time, I'll help you with it. That helps the process along, you know, same thing with developers going like, look, I don't expect you to write all the React code for this, but like maybe you could handle the CSS for colors and font sizes. Like maybe totally. you, like this is why design tokens are so important is because it's an accessible way for designers to code. Like I get hex colors as a designer. I, I get like, you know, font sizes. Like I, I can write that amount of code. And so a design token allows me to do that in a way that I don't have to like set up NPM or any, you know, any of that stuff, like set up node on my machine. Like those are great tools because it lets everyone move closer together, like closer to the center together, as opposed to, I'm not going to move. You have to change everything you're doing now. Yeah. And I really view that center as, as the creative process. And, and I'm completely with you, right? Where, you know, we've always thought about this as a line, right? And that line goes from design to development. Sometimes it points back to design. Sometimes it points back to developers. And then ultimately it eventually ends up pointing at a user. And really what it, it should be kind of envisioned as is this flywheel that is this cross-functional team working together towards this this creative process. And 
all of the people that are a part of that, even product owners and project managers have a stake in that creative process because that's ultimately what drives a a more successful product. And and getting back to your earlier point of it is a little bit self-serving when it's all about like how I do my job best and not how I create this product that is the best possible product for users. And that, that tends to get really lost along the way. And I think that that's, that's almost um, a sickness inside of, of a lot of organizations where Every team is so focused on on making sure that they're not the one that is holding up the release of a product that oftentimes they, they forget about that creative process and they're just trying to march in that line. Oh, there's so much pressure for people, you know, on product teams to like deliver and ship and quality and like it's just, you know, it's it's stressful, you know. And so who can blame everybody for going like, I'm not gonna change anything I'm doing because if I do, that's that's risk and I don't want to incur any more risk than I already have. You know, you, you talked earlier about lo fi, you know, like what's kind of the lowest fidelity that we can do here? And so a lot of what we try to get our clients to do is go as lo fi as possible and for designers the lowest fidelity possible, the lowest comp, right? Lowest fidelity comp is like a whiteboard sketch, you know, or, mm-hmm. or a napkin sketch. And, um, and so a lot of times what we try to encourage is how, do, how does the team build a product or a feature or whatever without a comp, right? That's the lowest. And that's scary for designers because it's like, oh, man, you're telling me to do my job differently. But now you're saying I can't even comp anything like that's, you know, that's bananas. But like then what it does is like if we can sketch together, anyone can do that right? The developer can Mm -hmm. sketch, the designer can sketch, the project manager can sketch, like anyone can sketch. So that way it means everyone can be responsible for the design and the creative and, you know, whatever you want to call it. And then what it allows the team to do, if you can do that, is if you can agree on a vision without a comp, then it allows everybody to go, okay, what do we need in order to execute on this? Well, someone needs to write code. We need to comp, not everything, but made this one piece that we don't really know what it looks like. We call those spot comps. Like, so mm-hmm. it allows designers to not have to like flesh out all the pages, every page, all the buttons, 26 artboards, mobile tablet, de- like none of that stuff. You know, like it's, let's work off of a sketch. Let's talk a lot, you know, and that leads to good products. And it leads to everybody going, oh, it's cool. You don't need to like, it, some, our developers will say like, designer, you don't need to comp that. I like, let me build it from the design system because we already have something like that. And then we can modify it together. Like you just saved me hours of comping. You know, so with that now, let me set up design tokens for you. Let me like write a list of hex codes for you that you could import into the build. Like, let me help you out because you just helped me out. And like, that's what collaborative teams look like. Totally. I, I love that. And I love the idea of of trying to, to pare down this this proliferation of comps and to try to have have them injected at the right moment in that process. I mean, you can almost envision some future world where there would be, you know, I, I mean, I don't know what the the baseline idea of, of a, a component of a design system looks like, right? But where you're starting with like, you know, an empty div with a one pixel border and, you know, 20 pixels of padding. And you're saying like, okay, here's our, our creative space. Like what goes in here? Yep. And that being the start of that comping process. And sure, have everybody have a role to play in that, right? Like a developer telling you if, if that's performant or or feasible from an execution standpoint, somebody in UX and design talking about like, you know, the experience of that component as a user and somebody from the product side of things seeing if it really meets the product vision. I think that like, in particular, those three roles are really important. Well, so this is why design tools are, are important, right? Because like what you're just talking about, you can do that, but it's just not, not everyone can control that, right? Only a developer can mm-hmm. control that. So when you say, let's start with a div on a page with a one pixel border, a developer could do that like pretty easily. Some designers could do that, you know, but not not a lot, not not all. But as that thing gets more complex, as everyone adds to it, as everyone like revises it, it gets out of the hands of anyone but the developer. And so like, right. you know, and I know we talked about this a couple of times before, but like, 
design tools, in order for them to really be working on software, they have to be software, right? So like, like I've always thought that, you know, the canvas of a design tool should be WebKit. Like it, it should be a browser canvas. It should be a browser rendering engine. Not, I mean, I don't know what, what design tools are built in, but like not, not Sketch, not Figma, not, like those still aren't the software of the web. Like how can a designer manipulate actual web components, like web elements in a web canvas? How can a developer do that at the same time? How can a product manager do that at the same time? At the same time? Whoever can crack that, I think they nail it, right? Because like that is the, the true design tool that we need is like something that's built of the materials of the web to be able to manipulate it in a web environment. Right. It's all about getting stuff in the, the medium it's destined for more quickly. Um, because otherwise you're you're building something that is a picture of an experience or or a, a spec for an experience, not the actual experience yep. itself. So I, I did want to switch gears for a quick second. Um, one of the things that that has entered this sort of cross functional team idea recently that I haven't really had a chance to talk a lot about before is the role of content and the role mm-hmm. of the content creator inside of a design system. And so we're experimenting with different ways of incorporating content into our design systems and our design processes. Um, really that creative process that we talked about. Talk to me about how you think about content as it relates to, to design systems, um, the authoring of content, the, the management of it. What do you see that, what, what role do you see that having in the creative process? Yeah. So I think that it's maybe worthwhile to distinguish, like when, when a lot of people say content, sometimes they mean copy. Right. And, and I think content is broader than copy. Copy is a form of content. And so like, just want to kind of mention that here to say like the, the broader definition of content is so important because without it, what are we doing? Like, you know, but content could come in many different forms. So copy is one form it, it could come in. But if you think about the content of like, uh, you know, Airbnb, like a map is content. You know, and a map, mm-hmm. and there's not a lot of copy written, you know, on a map other than maybe street names and stuff like that. But that's not a copywriter doing that work. Mm-hmm. That's a that's a developer doing the work of content. Part of how we think about that is that that's everyone's job is to think about how the content can be best delivered, right? A designer's job is to think about how it can be best presented and like contextualized. A developer's job is is also about that, but in different ways, like how quickly it loads or when it should load on a screen and what should come first or come after. You know, an information architect's job is about the hierarchy of that content and like where it appears in relation to other things. And so content is, is everyone's job. And the design system should be a tool, I think, to facilitate the best delivery of that content, right? So mm-hmm. what component could we use with this content? I, I wrote an article a couple of years ago about um, the difference between display patterns and content patterns, right? That like you could have a card, which is a display pattern because a card really just takes an image and a headline and a paragraph. But what is the content of that card? Well, who knows yet? It could be an event, right. could be an article, it could be, you know, a, pro, a profile, a person. So the content is separate from that. And, and what we try to do a lot of the times with with design systems, is we try to make these these modular encapsulated things, right, that, that are intentionally very ignorant of the content that is going to go inside of it. But there are some times where context matters, you know, trying to figure out how you think about um, how modular, how encapsulated you want these experiences to be and, and where the content and in, I agree also content is not just copy, but where, you know, where you have a narrow image versus where you have a tall image, where you have uh, something that needs to animate versus something that is static, where you have copy. And, and this is a copy thing where you have like, you know, some 
German word that is like 85 characters long that you only have a space for, you know, 60 characters. How do you think about those those sorts of decisions in in the process of building these design systems? Yeah, I, I love this because it actually brings us full circle to kind of where we started this conversation. It depends on what product you're building. Your design system can be opinionated about all of those things that you just mentioned, but it should be opinionated to the point of helping the product that you're building. So an example that I'll give you is um, we're working for an airline right now and helping them with build a design system. And, f- and for that airline, part of the design system, one of the design system components that we have is, you know, search with autocomplete. And the way that we built it is modular in the design of it, you know, and in the, in the components, but also in terms of the content. So you could point it at any data source and say, you know, search through this data source and do, a, you know, do a, a string search, right, it's for any mm-hmm. content in there. Sort of like a micro app of Yeah, sorts. exactly. Like, which, is, which is great about the idea of like how design systems and microservices and all that stuff comes together, like, which, is, which is, I think, the future of this, stuff, or maybe the modern of this stuff, right? But mm-hmm. we also have a flight search component, which is very opinionated to only doing the things that you need in flight search. So we intentionally haven't built functionality or haven't designed things to accommodate for anything that's not a flight in that search. And that is very specific to that organization that like, I'm not going to be able to take that. And if we were building a site for a, you know, an apartment rental site, like I couldn't use that flight search because it, it's so opinionated to that. So I think that there are places where it's appropriate to build things so modular and so abstract that it accepts any kind of content. But also there are places that it should, it should be very opinionated as to what it accepts and what it doesn't accept. And honestly, I think that is what makes, that's what separates some design systems from others is that I think that like how opinionated they are to help the products that that organization is building, that's what's make, what makes for a really good design system. It's not how good the forms are. It's not how good the tables mm-hmm. are. It's not how good the, the typography hierarchy is or the buttons are. Like every design system will have those things. Not all of them have flight search though. Not all of them have, you know, mm-hmm. apartment finder. Not all of them have, like those are the things where I think a particular design system shines and like where the high value components set in, like that starts to be where, where a great design system is really, really valuable for an organization. Well, that's really insightful. You know, Dan, thank you so much for taking the time to be on here. Uh, we could go on and on. Uh, there's no shortage of, of topics. Uh, you know, you got me just thinking about you know, the hierarchy and structure patterns inside of design systems. But we'll save that conversation for another day. I just want to say I really appreciate you. Thank you so much for taking the time to do this. And I know we're, we're recording a little early in the morning, my time for beer. Do you have like a, a good tea recommendation? I'm really into tea right now. Oh, man, I don't drink tea. I drink very little other than soda and water, which and it used to just be soda. So I feel like I'm improving. So, I was... so soda water? No, I, you know, it's weird. I don't do that. <laughs> it's like you're not on the you're not on the LaCroix train. I have a I have a soda stream that hasn't been opened for two years. I have you know, I don't really enjoy LaCroix. Like I'm a Coca-Cola guy, you know, gotcha. I, I, I just love a refreshing Coca-Cola. Awesome. Well, I'll make sure that your thank you gift is a case of Topo Chico then. Oh, wonderful. <laughs> <laughs> All right, man. Hey, I really appreciate it. Thanks a bunch. That's all for today. We'd love to hear from you with questions, ideas for new episodes, beer recommendations, or comments. You can find us on Twitter at the DS Pod. Cheers, and thanks for listening to the Design Systems Podcast. Mm-hmm.